Good morning and welcome to Chandler United Methodist Church. We're so pleased to have you join us today, whether in person or online. As we continue our mission of making disciples to put God first, we seek to come together and have fellowship with one another as we worship God. For by doing so, we can encourage one another and recharge our batteries before going back out to do the Lord's work. If you're a visitor, we hope that you will enjoy your worship experience and you will seek the Lord's presence with us on a regular basis. During the worship service today, please take the time to read your bulletin announcements. It's, we have several activities going on and we would encourage your participation. This month, our missions team is supporting UMOM. UMOM is the largest provider of services for homeless families in the state of Arizona, and the bulletin provides more on what that entails. Tomorrow, you can help set up for our Chandler I Help guests. We're collaborating with First Gilbert UMC to hold confirmation classes starting February 24th. Our Women of the Word group meets the second Tuesday of the month and they will have a potluck meeting on the 10th. All women of the church are invited. Now, Marilyn has some information for us. Thank you, Bill. I wasn't quite ready. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm reading a letter from our Desert Southwest Conference, our superintendent, Reverend Melissa Reinders. Uh, some of you have may already received this in your emails, uh, but this is a letter regarding our interim plan for our pastoral care. Dear members, and again, this is from Reverend Melissa Reinders. Dear members and friends of Chandler UMC, grace and peace to you in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. After a time of consultation and prayer, Bishop Carlo Rappinut intends to appoint Reverend Dee Dee, uh, her last name is so, Arika Kath, okay, less than full time to serve as interim lead pastor, and Mr. Stephen Gregory, less than full time to serve as interim lay pastor assigned at Chandler United Methodist Church, effective January 15th, 2023, they will both serve through June 30th, 2023. Both Reverend, both Reverend Arika Kath and Mr. Gregory are no strangers to Chandler UMC. Steve has worked among you for several years and it is at Chandler UMC that he began to explore his call to pastoral ministry. His work among you will continue to grow and flourish as he steps into this position of leadership and ministry. Reverend, uh, Reverend Arika Kath has preached at Chandler UMC several times over the years and is excited to walk alongside the congregation and its leadership as they transition and prepare for the new pastor that is to come on July 1st, 2023. Reverend Arika Kath currently serves as the Register to the Board of Ordained Ministry and is looking forward to using those gifts to help support Steve in his call and his ministry at Chandler UMC as well. The Bishop and the appointed Cabinet have heard of the work and growth you have been doing as a church community 
and acknowledge the importance of finding the right senior pastor to keep that vision going. <clears throat> we will continue to be in discernment for Chandler UMC and the new senior pastor that will begin July 1st, 2023. The bishop and cabinet are praying for you during this time of transition. We pray you will know and feel God's presence and peace in all that you do. Grace and peace, Reverend Melissa Reinders, our district superintendent. Thank you. Thank you, Marilyn. And may your year be filled with peace, prosperity, and love. May God's blessings shower upon you and bestow upon each of you a bright, healthy, and peaceful new year. Good morning. Can we have the children please come forward for children's time? Good morning and welcome to worship. It's a beautiful morning to come to worship. Anybody see the sunrise this morning? It was pretty good. No, you didn't see it? All right. Well, maybe, maybe tomorrow, right? Okay. Maybe tomorrow when you're getting up for school. Yeah. All right. So it was a beautiful morning and it's going to be a beautiful day outside. Great day to go outside. Well, today we are talking about Jesus' baptism and when Jesus was baptized. Do you remember the name of Elizabeth's son? What was Elizabeth's son's name? Do you remember? Yeah, remember Elizabeth's son's name? That's right, John, John the Baptist, right? And there's, we've got a picture here of John the Baptist. He was out there in the river baptizing people, wasn't he? He was telling people to, to repent, and what that means is to turn away from sin and start following God, to stop doing things that are wrong and start following God. And so he was out there baptizing people, and then who came along one day? Jesus did. And he asked John, John, baptize me. And at first, John was like, I can't baptize you. But Jesus said, no, you need to baptize me. And that's what happened. So then John baptized Jesus. And then as Jesus came up out of the water, it was like a dove coming down from heaven, the Holy Spirit. And at that moment, there was a voice that said, this is my son whom I love. That was God letting us know that Jesus is his son and that Jesus is here for us. And so we're going to learn more about Jesus' baptism. We're going to learn more about John the Baptist, too, in Sunday school. But the thing I want you to remember is that, that Jesus came here for each and every one of us. God sent him because he loves us. And this is part of the, part of the process as Jesus is being baptized, and then he's going on to do ministry and to show us the, the way to live and the things to do. So let's... Um, Let's pray now, and then we're going to go to Sunday school and learn a little more about Jesus and John the Baptist. Let's pray. Dear God, help me to remember that Jesus came for us because of his love for each and every one of us. And all God's children said, amen. Please stand as you're comfortable and able for our opening hymn. 
So 11 years ago, we met a tall, geeky guy, <laughs> you know, who has now led us to the heights that we have been, to the places that we are today, counseled many of us, guided many of us, and now this tall, geeky guy has grown up and is flying north. Not too far north, just in Paradise Valley so we could still keep an eye on him and watch and see what he's doing and still offer his prayer, our prayers to him and our guidance. And as a congregation, Marilyn has some cards, but we have something here specifically from us that I'd like to give to Jonathan, just a small token of our gesture to say thank you. Thank you for your guidance. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for the slap on the butt. Everything, <laughs> but just simply thank you. Love you. I'm glad we're doing it this is the pulpit because I need to hang on. Um, things are spinning and things are moving too fast and my heart is breaking again and all I can say is thank you. Thank you. You all are phenomenal. Thank you. Yeah, I came here 10 and a half, 11 years ago and we have been through a lot. Uh, we paid off a lot of debt. We baptized some children. We did some marriages, we reaffirmed some other marriages, we held hands through divorce, we had a lot of funerals. We watched some people leave, we watched some people come. We welcomed, we received as members, we reaffirmed baptisms, we watched discipleship happen. We did a lot of missions projects, a lot of missions projects. This is the church. And all I can say is thank you.
Okay, will you all join me in prayer for Jonathan and for our church? Gracious and holy God, we are grateful for having had Jonathan as our pastor these past 11 years. You have used his gifts of leadership, preaching, and insight <clears throat> to help us develop and deepen our daily discipleship, both individually and as a church community. He has blessed us. He has challenged and enlightened us. He has made us laugh and cry and think and reflect and read our Bibles. And he has cared for us deeply. Spirit of the living God, guide Jonathan's ministry at his new home at Paradise Valley United Methodist Church. Guide us here at Chandler United Methodist. Let us know you are present with us through this transition. Watch over Jonathan and all of us here on our journeys moving forward. Encourage us to follow the way, your way of compassion, justice, fairness, and humble courage. Your way for us to grow as your disciples and as your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Please sing with me as the ushers come forward to collect our tithes and offerings. Tears are falling, hearts are breaking, how we need to hear from God. You've been promised, we've been waiting, welcome holy child, welcome holy child. Hope that you don't mind our manger, how I wish we would have known. Long-awaited, holy stranger, make yourself at home. Please make yourself at home. Bring your peace into our violence. Bid our hungry souls be filled. Word now breaking heaven's silence. Welcome to. The gospel this morning is found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, and chapter 23, verses 23 to 33. Please stand as you're comfortable and able. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And verse 23, that same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, 
Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died. And since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching, and the people said, Thanks be to God for the gift of Scripture. Please be seated. It's just awkward. It just is. It feels strange. Everything that about this morning has felt strange. As I was driving in today, I was thinking this is the last time, uh, last Sunday, I'm going to be driving to this. I, it's. I'm waiting to come up. I, this is the last time I'm going to do this. I, it's, it, it has been nothing less than wonderful, and I, I just want to say again, thank you. Thank you. And I also want to assert again that I get very uncomfortable when I'm the focus of the church. Extremely uncomfortable. And so I decided... Uh, back when all this started to go down, that I, I was not going to let the last two sermons be my farewell or about me or none of that. Uh, we're we're going to do what we have done. One of the reasons that this has been such a joyous 10 years for me is that you have afforded me the opportunity to engage biblical scholarship and, and engage in textual analysis and it is focused and it has deepened my discipleship and I think it has focused and deepened yours. I think you've told me numerous times that, that it has. And so we're gonna do a bit of that today. Uh, this is the second of two sermons on women and divorce. We ended last week with Jesus standing in his hometown synagogue. He had been invited to come up and read scripture, uh, which, which is not uncommon when young people come home after college or during college or at some point, invite them to read scripture, that's fine. 
everybody can see, everybody can, oh, I'm so proud of that child. That's, that's what they were trying to do. And, and actually, what Jesus did was sort scripture. He, he read from Isaiah 61, and he read in the parts that were God's way, like compassion and and the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he has anointed me to proclaim release to the captives and good news to the poor and sight to the blind and so forth. He read in those parts, and he read out the parts that had been written in by the nationalists, written in by the patriotic, written in by people who wanted to politicize the church to become a function of the nation. He, he simply ignored those additions. And Jesus was modeling for us how we are to read Scripture and judge Scripture with a keen and careful eye about what we include in God's way and what we do not include as not God's way. And as we have noticed, and we noticed a lot last week, and we've noticed for quite a while, the context for a lot of scripture is male domination, dominion over women, men keeping women in their place, which brings us to the problem of the Old Testament. It, it's, the, the problem of the Old Testament is just one word out of Deuteronomy 24. But oh my gosh, the Old Testament spends an inordinate amount of energy and time sorting this out, bringing it up again and talking it over again and putting it down again. And, and let me tell you what's going on here. Deuteronomy 24 reads, suppose a man enters into a marriage with a woman, but she does not please him because he finds something objectionable about her. And so he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. The Old Testament spends a lot of time sorting out this kind of conversation of how do we keep women in the right place? And, and the problem, the word in, in this passage that is so problematic is, what is meant by objectionable? He finds her objectionable, so he writes her a certificate of divorce. The Hebrew word here, I'm not going to say it, um, uh, it, it's only used one other time in the Old Testament, and, and it's around camp sanitation. It, it has to do with general cleanliness. Um, so it's not real helpful in trying to tell us what was meant by the original writers. But fairly quickly, objectionable, as in finding your wife objectionable, uh, took on new meanings, and many meanings were attached to this, and really two camps. There's, there's the strict interpretation that says it's, it means adultery. And then there's a wider view that said almost anything can be objectionable about a woman. You gotta keep her in her place. And, and when I said that this is the problem of the Old Testament, I, I was not kidding. Uh, let me give you just a few examples of, of the depth of thinking and the energy and how often it shows up in the conversation, trying to keep women in their place. Nowadays, 
if a woman goes in to bear a child, if a woman is giving birth to a child, there may be the risk of tearing as the child, the head, the crowning, all of that. And a doctor or a midwife will perform an episiotomy, follow, which is a cut to allow a little more room for the baby to emerge. And then afterwards, we'll stitch up the woman and hold things together while healing takes place. Th this was a, a, an invention that came onto the scene in the late 1800s. And so prior to that, if a woman experienced tearing, there was no fix for that. It's, it's just the way it was. And in the ancient world, and in the first century of Judaism and before, um, if tearing occurred during childbirth, the status of a woman changed immediately. If the husband was kind, the woman would be set aside, meaning she had a place to stay and she had a job taking care of the child, but other needs in the marriage would be met by the husband's new wife, younger wife. That's if the husband was kind. If the husband was not kind, the woman could be immediately divorced, tossed into the world with no status whatsoever. And if a woman experienced health issues, it was even worse. Luke 8 tells the story of a woman who bled for 12 years. That's in the text, the gospel text. Could be any number of issues, um, bleeding for, for 12 years, but nonetheless, she saw herself, she had been told, you are displeasing in some way. You're being punished for something. You are undeserving of God's grace. She has no voice. She reaches out from the crowd trying to anonymously touch the robe of Jesus. She is healed in the process. And he turns and recognizes her and, and lifts her up uh, in front of the crowd. We also know that there was a lot of trophy wifing going on, and we know this because the Old Testament author Malachi, who, who wrote about 150 to 200 years before Jesus came on the scene, the Malachi, the prophet Malachi, does not hold back. Uh, there is no question. Go, go home and read the book of Malachi today. You, you kind of have to your eyes will get big because uh, Malachi is not shy. He calls out and he condemns the men of the nation for casting aside the wife of their youth, the mother of their children, and seeking what Malachi calls them wild women from outside the tribes of Israel. At first, the rules were just the law of Moses and the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And, and then along came the Talmud, which was the ceremony. If you want to make something powerful, build a ceremony around it and, and ritualize it. And so the Torah said, well, these certain sins should be punished by stoning and death. Okay, fine. 
Well, now we've got the Talmud who puts a ceremony around that, and it, it talks about who from the community should be there, who from the community stands where, who throws the stones first, and what you should do if all that stoning doesn't get the person killed. Uh, and wouldn't you know it, in the Talmud, it also became a lot easier for a man to divorce a woman. He basically just said to her, get out. You displease me. No more, no more certificate of divorce, none of that. Just get out. Just kick her out. And, and of course, the rules that forbid her personhood and kept her destitute did not change. It became a lot easier for the men of the community to exploit a destitute woman. And then the Levitical Code was rewritten and the Law of Moses, they were edited together into what is called the Mitzvot, 613 easy to follow rules that govern all aspects of life, community, everything. And once again, funny how this works, <laughs> funny how this works, in the combining, in the rewriting, God told the men doing the writing to make it even harder for a divorced or widowed woman to function in society, remarry, or get by without hiring a servant of the court, a scribe or a Pharisee, who would help her for a fee and it's now in the rules. And now we come to the Gospels, and Jesus does talk about divorce, and he is addressing these two very real issues. It's in his first public sermon. First, the scribes and, and Pharisees have those rules in place, and they are exploiting them to the max. It's codified in law conditions by which women were relabeled as displeasing to their husbands and divorced and now unworthy, legally unrecognized. And then the second part of that is the scribes and Pharisees making a profit in taking care of any legal matters for single women, for widows and divorced women who have any money at all, public service for a fee, which was actually a conveyor belt that moved women deeper into poverty. Jesus is seen walking and talking to women in the company lesson, not done. Jesus is seen talking to women who have no status, just not done. Jesus seems to be taking Genesis 2, the second of the creation stories, seriously. Genesis 2 implies that men and women were created equally in God's image, rib to rib. And so the Pharisees and the scribes seeing this, in fact, they say, we have seen him walking among sinners. They come to test Jesus on divorce. And in that conversation, Jesus cuts right to the point, the heart of the matter. He says, what did Moses command? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and put a woman away. They're, they're, all, they're proclaiming their own judgment. They don't know it, but they are, because they don't require that anymore. 
Jesus points out to them that uh, uh, Moses commanded the man to write that certificate of divorce in order for the woman to have status so that she would be able to marry again. It recognizes her existence in that culture. Otherwise, she had none. And against these men who benefited and profited from subjugating women, codifying it in law. And then these same men later would use these laws and rules and norms to dispose of their wives so that they can seek younger wives. Jesus is asserting the equal status of women in the eyes of God. And he even goes to the point of recognizing, he points out that the marriages that they had solemnized to these women that they're casting out, God was there. You asked God to come to your wedding. You invited God to come and solemnize this, this union of two becoming one. God did. And now you're throwing her out the door and saying she's not a person anymore. God is offended by that. You're dishonoring these women. You're dishonoring God. And Jesus goes on to remind these men, these Pharisees, these scribes, these Sadducees, that women could also divorce a man. He's reasserting the status of women as equals. And they, they had to think about that one for a minute because they had also codified into law that yes, a, a woman could divorce a man, but only men could do any legal filing. So if the woman wanted to divorce the husband, she had to get him to file the paperwork for her. Uh, yeah, funny how that all works out, right? In John 4, Jesus shocks his disciples. They find him talking to a woman by a well. A Samaritan woman, a Jew, talking to a Samaritan woman, which is appalling. And a man talking to a woman, uh, dreadful. And in the conversation, Jesus points out to her that he knows that she has had five husbands and is now living with a man that she's not married to. He is not judging her. She had been rejected in one way or another and cast out five times. Quite the predicament for her. And he's telling her that he knows the situation in which she is stuck. And he is judging the male-centered culture in which she lived. And I know that this reed has merit because he does not tell her to go home and get married so that she might be worthy of God. Find a new husband and God will bless this. He doesn't say that. What he tells her is that she has value in the eyes of God as she is. And then he chooses her. He sends her. He gives her voice as the first apostle that he sends to proclaim that he is the Messiah. These are just a taste of the context through which we must read 
any thinking we do about marriage and about divorce from scripture. And so now the question is, what do we do with this? Well, the most important thing that I want to say to you is that divorce happens. And sometimes it needs to. We are living three and four times as long as people did in the ancient world. 75 years of marriage is a long time. 75 years of marriage is not uncommon in these days. And, and yes, the, the church should uphold the ideal of all that marriage can be. It is wonderful and it should be held up, but there are other realities at hand. A majority of marriages until recently have happened when people are young adults, still, still happens that way. And, and people change, people evolve. It makes me think of uh, when our younger daughter was getting ready to go to college, I was asking her, I kept asking her, so what's your major gonna be? What's your major gonna be? What's your major gonna be? And she finally said to me, Dad, what decision did you make at 18 that worked out for you? She went to college undeclared and she figured it out while she was there. In Matthew 22, the Sadducees come to Jesus. It's the story Bill read for us today. What if a, ma a woman is married to seven brothers and the, each of the, each, the oldest and each of them dies and, and she is then passed on to the next brother? Whose wife will she be in heaven? And Jesus says, in heaven, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. He also chastises them because they don't know God. They know about God, but they don't know God. They know about God's power, they don't know God's power. They're spending their time arguing the law, and Jesus is trying to call them back to spending their time with God. It is time, I believe, for the church to stop using cherry-picked portions of Scripture to guilt people into staying, fanning those flames of guilt and, and keeping people trapped in situations that are not possible. Situations where there is perpetual unhappiness, where there is abuse. When marriages are starting and when marriages are over, the church could hold up God's way. Respect and decency and honesty and equality in all things. How disciples enter into relationships, how disciples disentangle themselves from relationships. Love and honor and integrity, and equity, and equality, and fairness in marriage, and in divorce. Dry, and then the other thing the church really would do well to do is drop that disturbing obsession with virginity. Women are not chewing gum. The church has the opportunity to be its best at the beginning of a marriage, and that's at the end of a marriage.
The church can be supportive of two people going through a divorce without getting in the middle. People don't need gossip. People don't need uh, infinite questions. People don't need us second-guessing them or condemning them or giving them advice. Nobody follows advice anyway. Why do we give it? What people need are friends in the church, fellow disciples who can be unconditional in loving them and listening if they'd like to talk, and jamming hands in pockets, and kicking rocks, and saying, okay, what are you going to do next? And the role of the church in that, the role of us as disciples, is to remind one another that each of us, that all of us are created by God. We're valued by God, loved by God. And nothing we might do or say is going to change that. Nothing anybody else is going to say about us is going to change that status in God's eyes. God declared our value. And it's not up for renegotiation. And the church can help us remember that when we are offering to our, beating ourselves up self-judgment and self-doubt and redefining ourselves as less, the church can intercede and say, stop that. And the church can also tell us, stop it, intercede, when we go off on our former soon-to-be ex, and we go through the divorce proceedings and the court settlements. They're created by God, too. God's way, telling the truth, matters. Honesty and equity and equality and fairness and all things. Divorce settlements especially. And making it a point that in church, we don't speak ill of one another. I, I would also like for us to steer away from, I would also caution, I would also guide you as your pastor to, to steer away from the question, is divorce a sin? And, and I steer that way for two reasons. First is, it, to define divorce as sin sets us about the task of telling our divorce story. We all have one. Our divorce, our son's divorce, our sister's divorce, our parents' divorce. We all have one. Telling our story about divorce in such a way that our side is the good side, the good people. And the other side, well, they're the bad folks. And our job is to persuade you they are the bad folks. So we're in the good and they're in the bad. Yeah, don't, don't, don't do that. Because doing that locates us in the biblical story. Remember who did that? The, the Pharisees. It locates us with the Pharisees. Turns us into judging others. And you remember, J Jesus was... This is one of those times when he just about lost it. He said a lot of words of caution about judging others. Specifically, don't do it. You place yourself at the edge of hellfire when you judge others. And Jesus says, I don't even want that role. In Luke 12, he says, who made me judge over you? The main damage of entering into judgment is that it seeks to relabel someone 
as unworthy, as less than, and to our God, who has already labeled that person as worthy and valued, God does not take kindly to us relabeling anyone else. That's the first reason I would steer away from trying to figure out, is divorce a sin. The second reason that I would caution against that is because it elevates the power of human sin and it underestimates the power of God. Sin does not come between us and God. Human sin has never been the problem for God that we make it out to be. It's not God's problem. God's problem are people who don't talk to God anymore. Or people who assume, well, you're unworthy of God. They say, we say that to her, oh, I can't talk to God anymore. I'm unworthy, I've screwed up, I'm being punished. No, keep talking to God, that's God's problem. Or when we look at somebody else and say, <laughs> you really blew it, that, you know, you're unworthy. Yeah, yes, I know, I know. Our understanding is that we've entered into a covenant in our marriage and that divorce breaks the covenant. And so it feels like we should be assessing blame. But really, d divorce is just a new covenant with that same person especially if there's children involved. And if we successfully relabel them as sinner, screw up, it's your fault, you're the bad one in this, what does that say about us? Because we linked ourselves to them at one point. And what does that say to our children? If we absolutely must speak about divorce as a sin, then we must also simply put it in the category, the bin, with all other human sin. It's no different. Oh, you brought some pencils home from the office accidentally in the car? <gasps> Same category. Oh, you didn't give the pie tins back to Ellen when she, <gasps> you're stealing. It, it, it's the same, it's the same. It, there's not better or worse sins. It, it just, it, and, and we must not allow ourselves to ever believe that there is anyone who can't be reached by God's work. That's the unforgivable sin. That's what Jesus said. He says this is the unforgivable sin, underestimating the power of God to work in someone's life. And that includes our ex. Your former partner, yes. It's also true for us. We may feel very beaten and broken by going through divorce. A big failure. But where better for God to be working? And, and so I'm going to ask you, what, what is God up to you in your life? The, the best words that um, I've heard on divorce come from a, an old friend of mine and uh, we were talking, it's been a few years, but she said these words. She said, she was talking about her divorce. She said, I would not wish divorce on anyone. The pain lasts longer than I expected. But because of what I've been through, I know a lot about life and myself. She said, I was angry and I was grabbing any chance to curse him and blame him. And then it hit me, 
that I was in a season of learning. How could I condemn what taught me so much? My insistence on being angry was blinding me to the learning opportunities in my past. And as I turned, as I, I realized, I came into a new understanding, she said, a new understanding of myself and my ex, I was able to learn some new skills. I learned some new boundaries. I was able to move forward with my life. I even learned how to forgive. And then she went on to talk about how forgiveness is, I didn't let him off the hook for anything. I simply just moved him out of the apartment in my head. He no longer has control over who I am or how I act. I, I think the best question for disciples, something we can wonder about in our time with God, is what can I learn from this? Have I wrung from this every drop of insight from what has happened? And how does that clarify God's way for me? How can I be more like Jesus because of what I've been through? This is our worship. This is what we do in the church. We sort and we see things as they really are. We try to identify all of the ways that are not God's ways so that those things can fall away. Leaving God's way what we see in Jesus as a light to our path. Respect and decency, valuing as equal, honesty, equity, compassion. This is God's way. Let us walk it. Please stand as you're comfortable and able for our closing hymn. <laughs>
the Spirit of God go before you to show you the way, behind you to nudge you forward when you want to freeze up scared, above you to watch over you, beside you to be sometimes the only friend you have left in this world. Go always in the peace of Christ. Amen. You run and not be weary. May your heart be filled with song. And may the love of God continue to give you hope and keep you strong. Joy, and may the road.